You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Jason, it was our first full week of April. Some optimism regarding the virus and more talk about the possibility of the beginning of a turnaround in the fight against it. I think a big theme this week, we decided as a result of this, fear versus greed. Worries about COVID-19 remain, but talk of reopening the economy was starting to push some to possibly take on risks. Well, and it really was a week of versus, right? Because the other thing we talked about was markets versus medical. And this notion that there's enthusiasm in the markets, part of that is owing to this notion of getting back to work, maybe the economy opening up, the administration certainly pushing that, but also just some really, really grim statistics and real human stories coming out of our backyard, New York Mm -hmm. City, especially, which has remained the epicenter. But we did get to speak to a bunch of CEOs, investors, geopolitical experts, authors uh, about how they're handling the coronavirus pandemic and maybe how all of us should be thinking about what lies ahead. Yeah, leaders from all walks of life, medicine, tech, streaming, media, sports, and more. These conversations with leaders in their fields happening in real time throughout our week as news concerning COVID-19 and its impact continue to break and shape our daily lives. So who are we talking about? We're talking about Meg Whitman. She launched a new company this week. Susan Line, notable investor in the venture capital world, also a media mogul in her own right. Larry Merlo, he is the CEO of CVS and John Wertheim. Love that guy talking sports. Yeah, we really touched on so many different aspects of our world. First up, though, we spoke with Bloomberg's Drew Armstrong. He is the team leader for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg News. He is really the architect of the coronavirus coverage here at Bloomberg, working nonstop and really keeping us informed when it comes to the various treatments, the potential vaccines, everything that we needed to know about the virus. Here's our update. I think the big thing that people are watching right now, and this has really been, you know, the thing to watch all along, is what are we seeing in new U.S. cases in the various outbreaks here? And that's, I want to be clear, you know, looking at the number of new cases is a leading indicator, but it's also a very imperfect one just because of the significant problems in the U.S. with broad comprehensive testing for this disease that you would like to do. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have read uh, stories, um, many of them written by us, about some of the problems with getting enough tests out there, Mm -hmm. getting everybody tested, who needs to be tested, and so on and so forth. But, you know, right now, as a leading indicator, it's kind of the best thing that we have right now. And we've seen a number of, you know, indications that in New York and New Jersey, which are two of the hottest uh, outbreaks going on in the United States, that new infections imperfectly counted as they may be, appear to be slowing. And that, you know, is overall good news in terms of when can some of these restrictions on movement and on business being open and on people having to stay home uh, begin to be loosened. There are a ton of caveats attached to that. Right. But if you were looking for good news, this does feel to be a little bit of that. Right. Global cases topping 1.39 million deaths, exceeding 79,000. Those are the latest numbers from Johns Hopkins. You know, you speak of um, imperfect models, Drew. Is China the model from a health case basis, the right model to be looking in terms of the trajectory? You know, I think there are some things that China tells us and some things that don't. Uh, um, there's, There's two ways to think about it. Like when we look at what happened in China, in Wuhan, we've seen the exact same dynamic play out in other locations around the world. You know, I mean, and I and I and I mean that from the standpoint that, 
you know, there are some significant screw-ups and then problems and then consequences that happened there that have happened uh, everywhere else. I mean, you know, first in China, we had basically the authorities say, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. We have this well in hand. You know, I think they were even saying it doesn't appear to be human-human transmission. And then we entered a period where they didn't really have enough testing capacity. And so it seemed like cases were only rising a little bit. But in fact, we had no idea how big the outbreak was there because they didn't have great testing capacity. Then all of a sudden they got it. Cases exploded. And then by the time Uh, That happened. The healthcare system in Wuhan got overwhelmed and they had to build immense new capacity. They had a lot of excess deaths. Um, That's exactly what happened in Italy. Um, That's that's very similar to what happened in the United States. I mean, we had, you know, federal leadership here that was saying this is well contained. It's not that big of a deal. And then we had a massive problem with testing. And then all of a sudden this thing was out of the loop. I mean, we've seen the same exact dynamic play out. Um, What I think the lessons we can't take away from, from China are, you know, one, they did a lockdown that I think would never be allowed in a democracy period. I mean, you know, people were physically unable to leave their homes. In many cases, there were um, reports of house to house searches to find sick people and um, haul them off to um, quarantine centers. Um, you know, it, it may look similar in some respects, but I think that there are some aspects of that that were much more um, uh, severe. And, you know, the other issue is that we've seen reports from, you know, the U.S. intelligence community that they appear to have significantly undercounted um, or underrepresented uh, the severity of the of the outbreak there. Right. And so I think we still have some missing pieces of information from China uh, that we really don't know how bad it was. And that may have influenced how the world thought about this disease as well. I mean, you know, academics and healthcare folks, their, their early understanding of this thing was really relied upon by what we heard coming out of China. Yeah. And it's possible that we got a very imperfect picture of that. And that's Bloomberg's Drew Armstrong. Carol, as you said, the architect of all of our coverage, you know, that guy from his attic, he's doing everything from assigning, editing, writing, going on our network and others to keep people up to date because he is at the epicenter, literally and physically and figuratively, of our coverage here. Well, and such a big part of the story is treatment versus cure, treating those who have the virus while we're also fighting really hard to find a cure for it. And sometimes those are at war with one another. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we've got the president and CEO of CVS talking to us about how they are ramping up virus testing. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. Well, today we're bringing you some of the most important and we hope informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show this week about the coronavirus, Carol. That's right, Jason. And this week, CVS launched a new rapid testing site in Lowell, Massachusetts. We caught up with CVS President and CEO Larry Merlot about one week ago to talk about the crisis for our Business Week talks. It's featured this week in the magazine. Here is our conversation. Well, Carol, we are in a unique position to help address the pandemic, uh, given our physical presence in communities all across the country and the ability to reach uh, millions of consumers with local solutions. There's no question the health and safety of our colleagues and the customers that we serve is our number one priority. And, you know, we're taking the necessary steps to ensure uh, their well-being. And I, I could not be more proud of the work that they're doing. There is a strong purpose uh, in our colleagues wanting uh, to play an important role in helping their communities manage through this. And uh, you know, every day we ask ourselves the question, you know, is there more that we can do? And, and that mindset has led to several actions 
focused on uh, access solutions as well as the safety and health of those we're serving. Well, Larry, tell us about some of those, because as you alluded to, and as we all know, this is a fast-moving situation. It feels like every day, as you say, uh, presents new challenges. What are some of the steps that you've taken in the more recent days to sort of ensure worker safety specifically? Yeah, uh, certainly, as I just mentioned, none of this happens without the extraordinary commitment of our employees. And, you know, we have done a number of, of things to uh, provide some peace of mind and, and help them navigate uh, through these times. And, you know, we're providing cash bonuses to our pharmacists, other healthcare professionals who are on the front lines, our store associates and managers and, and other individuals that, you know, are, are important in terms of their work being site-based. Uh, you know, we have been launching a new offering to help employees that, you know, have dependent care needs while providing sick leave to part-time employees for the duration of the pandemic. And, and like many others, uh, we have been working around the clock to provide uh, PPE and other safety measures, in, including protective panels at our pharmacies and our you know, front store checkouts, uh, you know, just to name a few things. And, uh, and again, I, I couldn't be more proud of the work that they're doing. Yeah, and and um, from what I'm hearing is, because I know you guys are going out, um, Larry, as well, and, and you're looking to hire, I think, about 50,000 full or part-time workers just to meet demand because you've got delivery, in-store, distribution jobs that need to be filled because of the rise in demand that you're seeing. Well, Carol, that that's right. We announced uh, a, a goal of 50,000 full-time, part-time, and temporary roles across the country. That that includes some open job requisitions that we had, you know. But it also includes making sure that we're providing, you know, our frontline workers uh, the relief that they need. And you know, we've been working with uh, with companies, uh, you know, across the country. You know, companies uh, largely in you know travel, hospitality. Uh, in terms of transitioning employees, uh, you know, that makes up a lot of uh, the temporary staff. And we've expedited uh, our hiring as well as our onboarding process. And, you know, we've gotten tremendous cooperation from those employees. And, look, it's, it serves a need for us during this period of time. Uh, you know, they want to continue to work. And, you know, and I'm sure as their companies uh, you know, we get past this pandemic and their companies get things back online, they'll, I'm sure there'll be an opportunity for, you know, those temporary workers to right. know, go back to the companies that, uh, you know, that they're committed to. And Larry, it sounds like then for all of your existing workers going into this virus, that you are keeping everybody employed. And they're, and so you're taking care of those workers. They will continue to get a salary. Um, they will continue to get paid. They will continue to get health care. These are your workers. These are our workers, Carol, and that's absolutely right. You know, our workforce is approximately 300,000 across the country. About 100,000 of those uh, colleagues work uh, in office-based locations. And, you know, our technology team has also done a wonderful job. We have about 80% of those, you know, office-based workers who are working remotely. The balance, you know, they, uh, they make sure that the lights are staying on for, you know, our call centers as well as our stores. And, you know, that leaves about 200,000 colleagues who are, you know, front lines. And uh, again, they're doing terrific things in, in, in supporting the needs of our clients and customers. 
And so, Larry, just staying with the the workers for a second, what what have you what are you hearing back from them in terms of what they're seeing in the stores? You know, as as you have mentioned, I mean, you guys have eyes on this in ways that that many don't. I mean, there are numerous CVSs in my community. I think in Carol's as mm-hmm. well. What are they saying back to you in terms of what they're seeing in the stores? Well, Jason, they're first of all they're greatly appreciative, uh, you know, of the role that you know that we're playing and. Yeah, I think you touched on this just a minute ago. You know, one of the things that we've done for our customers is, you know, to increase access to medication. Uh, we have waived charges for home delivery of prescriptions and uh, related products, as well as uh, laxing the limitations in terms of, you know, people getting prescriptions uh, refilled early, especially those with uh, chronic disease who are on maintenance medications. And, you know, we've seen a tremendous increase uh, in the utilization uh, in the need for home delivery, you think about you know seniors not wanting to go out of their home, and you know they're appreciating that service. And Larry, on on the point of pharmaceuticals and and folks stocking up on prescriptions, we certainly have heard about that uh, anecdotally. Are you experiencing any shortages on that front in terms of medicine specifically? We all know about shortages of you know toilet paper and other sundries, but when it comes to medicines, are you seeing any shortages in the system at this point? No, it's a great question, and, and with respect to the pharmacy supply chain, we have not experienced any disruption to date. You know, we have been in in constant contact with our suppliers. You know, they tend to carry about a three to six month supply, and you know, you think about prescriptions that are dispensed today across the country. About ninety percent of all prescriptions are generics, and you know, we have the size and scale with our partnership with Cardinal Health in the creation, you know, of a company that is called Red Oak Sourcing. And as a result, we have been able to uh, diversify our generic supply chain so that we are not dependent on any single manufacturer for a product. So uh, I, I think Americans can be reassured that, you know, the pharmaceutical supply chain is in good shape. And that's CVS CEO Larry Merlot. Obviously, if you think about leaders at the center of this, this is someone who's been in touch with the White House, obviously a front line of front lines in terms of dealing with consumers who are worried about getting tested and probably still worried because those testing sites not exactly spreading across the country but having to take care of employees and customers alike, Carol. Yeah, exactly. Two front lines, right? Both of its consumers and its workers. And, you know, they're thinking about the first responders, the healthcare workers, so much going on. So I'm glad he was able to carve out some time for us. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Quibi CEO Meg Whitman. And we talked about the launch of the Quibi mobile-only streaming platform. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we have from all walks of life, so many different industries on our daily radio show, and of course, all of it related back to the coronavirus this week, Jason. Well, and even new companies launching in the midst of this, their plans radically changed by the virus, its outbreak, and all of the social behavior that changed. That was certainly the case with Quibi. We caught up with Meg Whitman. She, of course, well known to many of our listeners out there. She ran HP. She ran eBay. Now she's got Quibi, partnership with Jeffrey Katzenberg. Here's what she had to say about the big launch. You know, listen, it was a hard decision to decide to launch, mm, right? I mean, right. this is a terribly, you know, disruptive time for everybody. But we ultimately said, you know, we're not medical professionals. 
are not first responders, but maybe we can bring a little joy and levity to people's lives with the content that we have. And so we decided to go for it. And we had to change everything about the launch, as you can imagine. We had a physical um, mm-hmm. launch event with a big red carpet. But guess what our biggest TV buy was launch week, the NCAA finals. Oh, so we had, we had all bought everything on March Madness. Okay, that all had to be scrapped. <laughs> <laughs> so there's been challenges. Um, but, but we've, you know, the team's been great and our production yeah. partners have been amazing because many of them, our daily essentials are all being produced, you know, from home. Well, and so, I've been remiss. Are, you're doing well, your family, your colleagues, everybody doing okay? Yes, yes, very much so. And I have, um, you know, I live in L.A. now, but my husband is a medical professional. He's a neurosurgeon. And so I'm sheltered in place in Sacramento where he's at UC Davis in Sacramento. Wow. So I decided wow. to come up here because he's, you know, he's on the front lines every single day. So, How's he doing? Um, he's doing great, but it's, you know, it's pretty tense out there. Honestly, yeah. it really is. Yeah. And what do you, you know, uh, Meg, you, you've obviously been very politically active and, and a candidate uh, for high office before so you understand the collision of, of political and, and economic and, and business and all of that. What do you make for, from that perspective as a leader of some of the responses that we've seen? I mean, Governor Newsom is, you know, getting some, some decent uh, reviews, more than decent reviews there in California. As you look across the country, I know we're a little off topic here, but what, what do you make <laughs> of the response? Yeah. Well, listen, this is unprecedented, right? No one, no governor, no president, no one has had to deal with something quite like this before. Well, maybe in, you know, 1917 or something. Um, So it's completely different. And I think, you know, they're feeling their way. I think Governor Newsom's doing a very good job. He jumped on this early. He had us all, you know, sheltering in place. The curve appears to be flattening here, but but we'll see. Um, You know, I think it's a very challenging environment for leaders, you know, in the political sphere. Well, and you know, what's interesting is, you know, we talk a lot, Meg, um, about how things are changing. Like I think about you, you were really wonderful. I did a breakfast of corporate champions with you about the breakup of HP and your panel, uh, the panel, your colleagues that helped in that breakup and, and what yeah. went on. And I just think, I remember. yeah, and, and I think, you know, how things change, right? And who would have thought HP, the breakup, but it did happen. And we live in a different environment. I do wonder how you see today's environment, um, how it will impact the virus, how it will impact our world going forward, maybe longer term. Yeah, I think that's a really very interesting question. I mean, don't you wonder whether work from home has changed forever? Yes. Yes. Um, I, I think it may have. We've all learned how to do this. I mean, I've been going into an office for 40 years, and all of a sudden, I've had to figure this out, which, you know, it's been pretty easy. I mean, I happen to be a tech exec, but still, you know, and it's pretty efficient, so I wonder if that will have changed. I um, wonder if this will have changed how families communicate. I mean, every weekend now, we're on with, you know, both my husband's family and my family for mm-hmm. an hour and a half, you know, doing a Zoom call. Yep. <laughs> we yeah, never yeah. did that before. Right. <laughs> so... No, um, I think you know, I think that's now. totally true. Well, and and Meg, yeah. you know, you've been you know elbow neck deep in the creation of a new media company. How do you think media changes uh, going yeah. forward, both in terms of this inflection point, but also wrapping a re- in you know the whole notion of this virus? Well, I think um, listen, you know, Hollywood is a surprisingly um, uh, entrepreneurial place. Think mm-hmm. about it. Every time you start a movie, okay, a movie is a startup. It's not that different from a startup in Silicon Valley. And uh, so uh, they are adapting really fast to um, this entirely new environment. And I think you may see different kinds of content. I think how it's consumed may be different. 
um, you know, you wonder whether everyone comes pouring back into the, you know, movie theaters or, you know, that's fundamentally changed. I don't know. But um, people are exploring new ways to consume content. Um, we were excited because we thought, you know, if we could make watching um, Hollywood quality content on your phone um, terrific, you know, that would be something that hadn't been done before. It was technology enabling a new way to tell stories. And I think you're going to see a lot of that, you know, in part because of the situation in which we find ourselves, but also the normal march in time of technology and its advancements. And that's Meg Whitman, the CEO of Quibi. Good to catch up with her. I was glad she took yeah. my curveball when I asked her about <laughs> uh, the response there in California. Because, listen, she has sat right at that nexus of politics and business. She ran for the U.S. Senate there. And it was just great to catch up with her and just, you know, hear about their plans and how their plans were changed rather dramatically. Absolutely. You're listening to Bloomberg this week. Coming up, we hear from an old friend, Jamie Metzl. He's a senior fellow over at the Atlantic Council, also has his book out in paperback, Hacking Darwin. We're trying to hack everything these days. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. And today we're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations we had on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, all about the coronavirus again, all walks of life, everyone dealing with this crisis, Carol. That's right. And Jason, we had the opportunity to catch up with really a friend of our show, Jamie Metzl. He's a technology futurist, former director on the U.S. National Security Council and the State Department and on the Foreign Relations Committee. He's now senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He really gave us a snapshot of how our world might change as we know it. Yeah, so that's this crazy experience that we're having now is that all of these trends that we thought would play out over 10, 20 years are happening now because we're in this crisis. So you and I, Carol, we're both, and Jason, we're, we're all here in New York, and we the number of cases is overwhelming our healthcare system. And not only that, our healthcare providers are in themselves being infected. So we're re- relatively quickly going to come to a point where we have more patients and not enough doctors. And so we're going to have to shift so that the, at least the first point of care is going to have to be artificial intelligence so that if you have a symptom, um, you, you go online and you have an artificial intelligence agent, basically a, a program, and everybody will have a home kit of a thermometer and a scale and a blood pressure cuff and a few other simple things. And you'll put in your symptoms and you'll put in your readings from home and then you'll get a differential diagnosis. And if it's just um, here are some things you should just stay home and, and have chicken soup and liquids and rest. The AI will tell you that. If you need to be escalated, then the AI will refer you to a telemedicine general consult and then perhaps to a specialist telemedicine consult and only then to a human. So this whole thing now where you feel a symptom and go to the doctor, it's great for normal times, but it's probably not going to be possible in crisis times like this. And so I guess one of the questions, Jamie, is – what of crisis time will become normal in normal time? It's such a great question. And people, a lot of people have this feeling that what we're experiencing now is kind of like a snowstorm, that it's a big storm, we sit home, the plows come out, plows it, the, gets rid of the snow, the sun comes out, everything melts, and then we just go back to our lives. Right. The old lives that we've had are never coming back in so many big ways. And so... This shift to virtualization that we're all experiencing 
it's going to happen. It's going to going to continue, not just in healthcare, but in everything else. I mean, our companies are taking a beating. They're not going to bring all these employees back in expensive real estate uh, across the economy. That we're going to see big, big changes that are going to change the way we live and the way we work and certainly the way we experience healthcare. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've had so many conversations about what will be lasting. It's interesting because here we have gone through this phase. Um, you know, we certainly have it in our offices, you know, these open environments where all teams can walk into one another, you know, conversations across different parts of the business. Um, and that has seen as an advantage. But we are finding to some extent that we can do a fair amount of that through our virtual world, right? Absolutely. And on top of that, we're not going to go back toward anything that even feels normal until there's a vaccine. And I know we're hearing this, uh, this 12 months as a, as a possibility, but that's the ultimate dream scenario. That's everything going right with an, at an order of magnitude, better performance than we've ever had in, in the history of healthcare. Um, so it could be that it's 18 months, two years, until we're able to be in those same kinds of physical environments. I was doing a Denver radio interview the other day, and I told them that I didn't think it was very likely there was going to be a full stadium NFL football game anywhere in this country until 2022. Wow. And these guys, they were planning on you know, going, going to, to opening day later this year. And it, it's, it's re- this is really big change. It's so hard to fathom where we're heading. Right. So, Jamie, when you hear the president or other officials or even business folks start to talk about reopening the economy, you say what? Not even close? Well, it depends on what we mean. We can't, have, we can't be totally hunkered down like we are now forever. Um, mm-hmm. But we're not going to be able to just say everybody goes back because, again, until there's a vaccine, if we all go back to normal, um, we're going to have this same kind of, of explosion. What we're talking about is, is this exponential growth. So do I, I, how will it work? Maybe some people will go back. Maybe we'll have some groups of kids who will go in small numbers to schools, maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday group and a Tuesday, Thursday, mm. Saturday group and, and businesses will have to work that way. And somebody in the government, very tragically, is going to be doing a calculation about how much we open the economy versus the number of people who, at least until there's better treatments and a, and a vaccine, are going to die. And that's, I mean, that, that's the, you know, I'm sure you've had Cass Sunstein on your um, on your your program, but that kind of calculation, mm-hmm. the government does it all the time when they say, well, what should the speed limit be? They, if you increase the speed limit, people go faster, but you'll have more fatalities. And right. that's sadly this calculus that we're going to tragically have to do. You know, Jamie, I, w- I wanted to pose a, a question to you that that came to me earlier when we were talking to our colleague Andy Brown, who runs our new economy uh program, a new economy forum that happened last year uh, over in Beijing or just outside of Beijing. You are a China expert. I mean, you're an expert on many things, as we have laid out. Um, But you know so much about China and specifically the relationship between the U.S. and China. And I do think this has thrown that thrown that relationship, which already was, to say the least, complicated over the trade war, into a whole other category. What do you make of it right now, especially at a time when, man, and I know I'm being a little Pollyannish about this, but if those two 
superpowers could get together, I do feel like we could make some progress on this, right? Yeah. So, well, the good news is in the, on the scientific level, our scientists are actually working pretty closely good. together. And that's positive. I was on a big, <clears throat> a big global call where we had scientists um, from China, scientists from Italy, and scientists from the United States and elsewhere. So that that is happening. But in terms of big power politics, I mean, this is really, really dangerous. I mean, first, there was all the name calling. And I think that it's just undoubtedly true that China's massive failure at the beginning of this you know, helped exacerbate this, uh, this problem in a very, very big way. And we're all suffering as a result. Um, but the total failure of the Trump administration to prepare, even when we had the warning signs out of China in January and U.S. intelligence was raising the alarm that the reason why so many people are dying here in New York and elsewhere is not just because of China. It's also because of the total failure of the U.S. response. That's the starting point. But we have to work together to get there from here. I was just hearing and, and when I was waiting to, to come on about Tim Cook having supplies made uh, and Apple having mm-hmm. supplies made that are going to save people's lives here. Where are those supplies being made? You didn't mention in, in your report, but I would bet anything they're not being made here in the United States. They're being made in China that has figured out a better way than we have to address this problem. And if we don't learn from China in spite of all of the problems that we have in our relationship, we're going to harm ourselves. So I totally agree with you, Jason. We have to find a way to, to collaborate. Well, and I think, you know, China in particular, um, Jamie, they have had to deal with other health issues before, right? I mean, you know, this was a society, a country that has dealt with similar things, whether we go back to SARS and some other, you know, um, health situations, even just dealing with their air, (laughs) you know, so I feel like they were certainly well ahead of us in kind of understanding, you know, how this can disrupt kind of your life as you know it. That's exactly right. And that, that was one of the problems. You mentioned my background in in China and Asia. So when this thing first started happening and I was seeing the alarm bells uh, coming out of China, I talked to my brother, who's a doctor here in New York. And I said, look, this is really a big deal. Sound the alarm. And he went and spoke to to one of the doctors, the infectious disease guy in his hospital. And that guy said, oh, no, this is all overblown. This is just the flu. And I think the problem was in China and in across Asia, when they had this experience, they fought SARS, and they mobilized right away because right. they knew how scary SARS was. We were spared a lot of the pain of SARS, so we thought flu. And because flu was our paradigm, we weren't, we weren't ready for it. On, and that's, I think we're, we're still suffering as a result of that. That's Jamie Metzl, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Catching up with him, he was in New York. Jason, he's often our go-to person when it comes to things in the government, uh, technology, watching how our world is changing. And I really felt like he had some really big ideas about what it looks like on the other side of the virus. Well, and timely, too, because his book out in paperback this mm-hmm. week. You want to pick that up. It's a good quarantine read in many ways. Hacking Darwin, uh, all about artificial intelligence, sort of where we're going because we are trying to figure out the human body, the human genome, 
all sorts of things to cope with crises just like this. All right, that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Plenty coming up in our next hour, including we hear from Susan Line, longtime media executive. She's now investing in female-run companies. We'll catch up with her, talk to her about her portfolio, and just also about the world at large, how media might change as a result of the virus. Absolutely. And Peter Gleistein, maybe lesser known to many of our listeners, mm-hmm. but if you know anything about Wall Street, you know this. This is a guy who has been in the midst of crises before. He was a right-hand man to Jimmy Lee at J.P. Morgan through so many amazing yeah. moments in Wall Street, right in the midst of the credit crisis that we're experiencing right now. And then, of course, if you know anything about the world of sports, you've got to know John Wertheim. He's executive editor, senior writer for Sports Illustrated, contributing correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes. What he had to say about how our world changes, that really stayed with me. All of that coming up. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. Today, we're bringing you some of the most important, we hope, informative conversations we had this week on our daily Bloomberg Business Week radio show, Carol. And Jason, one of the conversations both of us were looking forward to was John Wertheim. He is executive editor, senior writer for Sports Illustrated, contributing correspondent for CBS 60 Minutes. We both wanted to ask him how the world's going to change when it comes to sports. Also, Susan Line, we loved catching up with her as well. She ran ABC Entertainment. Now she's investing in startups around technology, a little bit of media, and man, uh, that world has changed. But first up, Peter Gleistein. He's the CEO and CIO over at AG GL Credit. They are in the midst of the credit piece of this crisis, but he's also a guy who's worked on Wall Street for four decades. He's seen some things and he has some lessons to share. Listen in. The business that we're in and the asset classes that that we manage is designed to write it out and and has historically, but we don't know what this storm is going to be like. I I do think in, in, in over the four decades that I've been in credit, um, nothing remotely approaches the the extent of the crisis that we're facing, and 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 that's I think mainly because it's being driven by human behavior. It's not being driven by um, a manufacturing plant laying laying off X percent of its employees and demand being curtailed or the Fed rising interest rates. This is behavior driven, and we don't know how far this is. The pandemic's going to drive behavior, how it's going to change behavior. And we also don't know how how um, deep and long the recession will be. Um, so th- those are huge unknowns. And I would just add that um, unlike prior recessions and market crises, this is much more multifaceted in terms of what's happening and, and what could happen. I mean, we've never really faced a situation yeah. where whole industries are confronting revenue evaporation, not revenue decline, but evaporation. So it's quite serious. Right. Peter, to make the comparison to the financial crisis isn't accurate, is it? I don't think so at all. Um, the, the financial crisis was stimulated by, engendered by a lack of liquidity and financing. So the, the global financial system was in the financial crisis, rapidly decapitalized money capital was sucked out of it by so many assets being on a mark-to-value basis and, and losing their value and banks and other institutions being overextended. And they, they withdrew credit and there was a lot of 
forced selling. There's a lot of leverage and a lot of forced selling. Here we have the opposite. We don't have, in the sense of the strength of the financial system and the banks, um, they're in a very strong position. Um, but every kind of person, business, entity, including not-for-profits, are confronting um, a huge curtailment, if not cessation of activity for an unknown, yet unknown period of time. So what the, what at, at, a, at a surface level, what I'll call what the kind of traditional recessionary effects of that are, are, are remain unknown, but even more seriously, I think is what, what longer term, including structural um, damage and change, um, you know, will be wrought by all of this. Um, I, I do think clearly that we'll get through it. And there'll be some maybe long-term, some, some good effects, some good things might come out of this trauma. Um, but between now and then, there'll be a huge amount of change, disruption. Right. Uh, and, and Peter, when you say structural change, are you talking about sort of e- economic structure in terms of, because I feel like that goes back to your initial point about human behavior. Like we don't know exactly what the structural changes are going to be because so much of it is going to be dictated by how we act as consumers and businesses, right? Exactly. So I, I'm not the first person to make this point, but um, a couple things could happen. First of all, um, it's possible that people will love sports and and entertainment even more than before, but they may only they may decide in the future to only experience it virtually. As, yeah. yeah. Or we're all learning how effective. So AGL is working fully remotely and very effectively, and um, there are terrific tools that enable that. So we all may think of offices differently, and if we do that, what's going to happen to commercial real estate? So there's just there's just so many. Um, unintended consequences that we don't understand yet. And I'll lead on to say that um, I think the all the markets will continue to be very volatile because with this degree of unprecedented uncertainty, one um, analysts and others can't really um, create the dimensionality around which you can create models to for valuation purposes. They're just they're just too many variables and right. interacting. And they defy they defy being modeled. So we right. will have we'll have instability until things settle down and, and, and we can reach reach that stage. And that's Peter Gleistein, the CEO and CIO at AGL Credit. And Carol, this is a guy you just want to hear from at a time like this. Very calm. He's seen some things. He's got great perspective. And I really appreciated some of the comparisons that he made to crises that we've seen before. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we're going to hear from longtime media executive Susan Line. She now runs her own shop, BBG Ventures. She's investing in a portfolio of companies run by women. So what she had to say about the media landscape and also check in with how her businesses are doing a smart conversation. That's coming up. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. Of course, all of it relating back to the coronavirus. And we were really pleased to catch up with Susan Line. Carol, someone mm-hmm. you've spent a lot of time with. She's the founder and managing partner over at BBG Ventures. A long history in the media space. She ran Martha Stewart's Empire. She ran ABC Entertainment. She's done a lot out there in the world. So she understands media, certainly, but also a good conversation about how life may change on the other side of this? You know, this is the giant question out there. Um, I I think we know the near-term impacts, I think, uh, and I'm happy to talk about some of the things we're seeing. I think the the more interesting piece of this is whether it will create um, behavior changes Mm. over time. Uh, How much of what we are are being forced to do now will actually become part of our work lives or, as you say, learning lives or, um, or just the way we live. Um, and that, I think, will take time to really understand. But there are certain things that, that I have to believe will never completely go back. You know, I, I can't imagine that companies are going to go back to spending as much on business travel, for yeah. example because everyone has been forced to figure out how to do business uh, across country uh, using Zoom or whatever, uh, whatever video product your company uh, uses. Um, and there's a ton you can get done. There's no question. And it, it can be very intimate, in fact. So uh, things like that, uh, I think, are going to have... Um, a much bigger impact than just keeping us in for a couple of months. And and what do you let, let's continue to talk about that because th- this is the most yeah. fascinating piece yeah, of this to, to me, honestly, Susan and, and Carol and I talk about it on air, off air, all the time. We talk mm-hmm. about it within our company because we are seeing things differently. Uh, you know, working from home, candidly, spending more time with our families. In many cases, yeah. I I hope yeah. you know more balanced uh, parenting in in some ways. Like, I'm not so what, tired absolutely. anymore. <laughs> so what's the net effect of that? You think? I think that, look, I hope it's going to have um, a uh, lasting impact on things like co-parenting. That would be a beautiful thing. Um, and certainly, I think there's a lot of men out there who are realizing um, there's great pleasure in doing a lot more with their their families than maybe they were able to do uh, when they were working 16 hours a day. Um I do think that there will be more working from home. Just no question about it. There's a uh, there's value in it for companies, uh, maybe not full time, and certainly not for your entire team, as we're forced to do right now. But there's a lot of jobs that can be done remotely, and there are a lot of days in the week. I think when you could uh, organize things to do your work from a home office. So. I do think that is going to have um, uh, runover effect, um, and I think there's going to be demands on both sides of the table for it. I, I think there are are companies who's uh, who are going to realize they can be more efficient by doing this, and I think there are people in 
uh, all levels of jobs who are going to say, you know what, I want to work from home two days a week. Well, listen, like I think even, you know, TV, television, radio, who would have thought, I mean, Jason and I are both, you know, we're a state apart, we're 40 miles apart, and we're doing, you know, a co-anchored show, and television, we've all seen people from their homes, who would have thought that we would be able to do, I'm not saying that, you know, we're the most important industry, hardly, but it would have been one of those things you're like, no, you can't do that from home. Well, yeah, we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's... um uh, someone said to me the other day that that they've seen the inside of people's uh, homes and apartments so <laughs> much more frequently in the last three weeks than they ever had in their lifetime. So there's there's definitely things you learn about your coworkers too when. Uh, when you are operating like this. So Susan Line, uh, back with us. Uh, Susan, thanks for hanging on. Uh, Got to ask you, you know, given all of your experience in the media world, what do you make of the media world right now? We're at such an interesting inflection point and we're testing all these different things given everybody's streaming and consuming in a different way. What do you see out there? Yeah, look, I think this is a, a really interesting moment. Um, certainly for as you said, streaming media. I think it's obviously much tougher for for scripted media, for entertainment. Um, there's tons of it being consumed right now, but until and unless they can get back to actually producing, um, it's going to be far more difficult. But there's no question moments like this uh, make people hungry to understand what's going on in the world and hungry to, you know, be entertained, to laugh. And there are so many options for, for viewing at this moment. I think the mainstream media, well, you can see just by the ratings numbers, um, they've doubled uh, their audience in some cases, even more than that for what we consider mainstream media, things like cable news. Um, And I think that will continue for a while, but I think the issue is how do you uh, keep that kind of, um, I would say, solution to what people need, what people want on a daily basis once they're not completely isolated and uh, and once they're, um, they're no longer concerned about the immediate health threat. And that's Susan Line, founder, managing partner of BBG Ventures. Man, I just really got a lot out of that conversation. I have to say, I was thinking about it a lot afterwards, Carol. Well, and she's so thoughtful. She really thinks before she answers her questions. I mean, this is someone who, as we said earlier, president of ABC Entertainment. She ran Martha Stewart Omnimedia, oversaw AOL, directed the board of Gilt Group. She's now investing, you know, venture capital into uh, companies that are built by women. She also had some thoughts about Quibi. We caught up with Meg Whitman earlier about how you monetize these streaming services. But again, I'm so glad we got some more time with her. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Joe Lonsdale, partner at 8VC, co-founder of Palantir. We talked with him about how Silicon Valley is trying to rise to the challenge of the coronavirus pandemic. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. 
We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had throughout the week on our daily radio show. Of course, all of it relating back to the coronavirus. And we were really pleased to catch up with Susan Line, Carol, someone mm-hmm. you've spent a lot of time with. She's the founder and managing partner over at BBG Ventures, a long history in the media space. She ran Martha Stewart's Empire. She ran ABC Entertainment. She's done a lot out there in the world. So she understands media, certainly, but also a good conversation about how life may change on the other side of this. You know, this is the giant question out there. Um, I I think we know the near-term impacts, I think, uh, and I'm happy to talk about some of the things we're seeing. I think the the more interesting piece of this is whether it will create um, behavior changes Mm. over time. Uh, How much of what we are are being forced to do now will actually become part of our work lives or, as you say, learning lives or, um, or just the way we live. Um, and that, I think, will take time to really understand. But there are certain things that, that I have to believe will never completely go back. You know, I, I can't imagine that companies are going to go back to spending as much on business travel, for yeah. example because everyone has been forced to figure out how to do business uh, across country uh, using Zoom or whatever, uh, whatever video product your company uh, uses. Um, and there's a ton you can get done. There's no question. And it, it can be very intimate, in fact. So uh, things like that, uh, I think, are going to have... Um, a much bigger impact than just keeping us in for a couple of months. And and what do you let, let's continue to talk about that because th- this is the most yeah. fascinating piece yeah, of this to, to me, honestly, Susan and, and Carol and I talk about it on air, off air, all the time. We talk mm-hmm. about it within our company because we are seeing things differently. Uh, you know, working from home, candidly, spending more time with our families. In many cases, yeah. I I hope yeah. you know more balanced uh, parenting in in some ways. I'm like, not so what, tired absolutely. anymore. <laughs> so, what's the net effect of that? You think? I think that, look, I hope it's going to have um, a uh, lasting impact on things like co-parenting. That would be a beautiful thing. Um, and certainly, I think there's a lot of men out there who are realizing um, there's great pleasure in doing a lot more with their their families than maybe they were able to do uh, when they were working 16 hours a day. Um I do think that there will be more working from home. Just no question about it. There's a uh, there's value in it for companies, uh, maybe not full time, and certainly not for your entire team, as we're forced to do right now. But there's a lot of jobs that can be done remotely, and there are a lot of days in the week. I think when you could uh, organize things to do your work from a home office. So. I do think that is going to have um, uh, runover effect, um, and I think there's going to be demands on both sides of the table for it. I, I think there are are companies who's, uh, who are going to realize they can be more efficient by doing this, and I think there are people in 
uh, all levels of jobs who are going to say, you know what, I want to work from home two days a week. Well, listen, like I think even, you know, TV, television, radio, who would have thought, I mean, Jason and I are both, you know, we're a state apart, we're 40 miles apart, and we're doing, you know, a co-anchored show, and television, we've all seen people from their homes, who would have thought that we would be able to do, I'm not saying that, you know, we're the most important industry, hardly, but it would have been one of those things you're like, no, you can't do that from home. Well, yeah, we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's... um uh, someone said to me the other day that that they've seen the inside of people's uh, homes and apartments so <laughs> much more frequently in the last three weeks than they ever had in their lifetime. So there's there's definitely things you learn about your coworkers too when uh, when you are operating like this. So Susan Line uh, back with us. Uh, Susan, thanks for hanging on. Uh, Got to ask you, you know. Given all of your experience in the media world, what do you make of the media world right now? We're at such an interesting inflection point, and we're testing all these different things, given everybody's streaming and consuming in a different way. What do you see out there? Yeah, look, I think this is a a really interesting moment, Um, certainly for, as you said, streaming media. I think it's obviously much tougher for for scripted media, for entertainment. Um, there's tons of it being consumed right now, but until and unless they can get back to actually producing, um, it's going to be far more difficult. But there's no question moments like this uh, make people hungry to understand what's going on in the world and hungry to you know, be entertained, to laugh, and there are so many options for for viewing at this moment. I think the mainstream media, well, you can see just by the ratings numbers, um, they've yeah. doubled uh, their audience, in some cases even more than that, for what we consider mainstream media, things like cable news. Um, and I think that will continue for a while, but I think the issue is, how do you uh, keep that kind of, um, I would say, solution to what people need, what people want on a daily basis once they're not completely isolated and, uh, and once they're, um, they're no longer concerned about the immediate health threat? And that's Susan Line, founder, managing partner of BBG Ventures. Man, I just really got a lot out of that conversation. I have to say, I was thinking about it a lot afterwards, Carol. Well, and she's so thoughtful. She really thinks before she answers her questions. I mean, this is someone who, as we said earlier, president of ABC Entertainment. She ran Martha Stewart Omnimedia, oversaw AOL, directed the board of Gilt Group. She's now investing, you know, venture capital into uh, companies that are built by women. She also had some thoughts about Quibi. We caught up with Meg Whitman earlier about how you monetize these streaming services. But again, I'm so glad we got some more time with her. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, Joe Lonsdale, partner at 8VC, co-founder of Palantir. We talked with him about how Silicon Valley is trying to rise to the challenge of the coronavirus pandemic. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly from Bloomberg Radio. We're bringing you some of the most important and informative conversations that we had on our daily radio show about COVID-19 this week. 
And we were so excited, Carol, to check in with John Wertheim. You know, normally it'd be a few months, candidly, before we talk to him. <laughs> yeah. We'd be out on the grounds of the Billie Jean King Tennis Center there in Queens. But we had to get to him sooner because the world of tennis, the world of sports, it has changed. Check it out. Well, we're not in a great place, honestly. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of tennis's great virtues is its global cast. But in this case, that is a, a liability. And so this is a sport where everyone's on a plane almost every week and players come from all over and it's really been tough i mean there's no guaranteed contracts there's no players union um roger federer is going to be just fine serena williams is going to be just fine but there are a lot of players who are run-of-the-mill you know very respectable serviceable pros that are really feeling the pinch right now and i think the big question too and i think we see this in all sports is just the uncertainty and if you blow out your knee, the doctor will say, here's your rehab schedule, and if everything goes well, you'll be back by September. And if you have a rain delay, you can look at the weather map and you can prepare when the baseball game is going to resume. I think just the fact that there is no endpoint here has really been something that's been very destabilizing to, to a lot of athletes who I think have lost some, some sense of purpose here, and they're just not quite sure how hard to train. It's, it's been a very strange time, and certainly... Uh, tennis players among them. So what kind of assistance could be coming their way is being asked for? I think about, you know, each of these individual athletes to some extent are kind of a mini small business potentially. And I do wonder, you know, we've certainly got gotten small business assistance, you know, from the federal government, but I'm, I'm just curious if there's any kind of assistance, you know, coming their way. It certainly, I'm assuming, is being asked for. It's a great question. I've thought about that, too. You're absolutely right. I mean, these players are basically, they're independent contractors, and you're right. They're, they're basically small business owners. And I wonder about their eligibility. There has been talk about setting up some kind of a fund for players. I mean, I, I, the good news is that they're not incurring expenses. So it's very expensive to fly all over the world and employ a coach and a trainer and a physio and get massages and racket strung. I mean, the good news is that none of them, none of the players really have those expenses right now, but uh, it's unclear. I mean, both, both tours, the ATP, which is the men's tour, and the WTA, which is the women's, are allegedly coming up with some sort of a relief program. There's also the question of how deep does this go? I mean, there are yeah. more than 1,000 players that have rankings. Do you fund the guy ranked number 500, or do you limit this to just the kind of players that you and I would see at the U.S. Open? Uh, so far, it's been a lot of discussions and, and not a lot of checks being cut. Right. And and I guess one of the questions sort of kind of synthesizing some of this together is we don't know what what the end point is. We saw the French Open come out and sort of make their move. We saw Wimbledon get canceled altogether. We're still waiting, I believe, to hear from the U.S. Open. How much did the French kind of, to put not too fine a point on it, sort of mess this up for everybody? <laughs> Um, yeah, we should point out that the French Open, which is traditionally uh, starts around Memorial Day, the French Open said, we're canceling, and then a few days later they said, oh, and by the way, we're going to grab this date on the calendar in late <laughs> September and early October. And uh, everybody else in tennis said, wait a second, you can't do that. And the French Open said, we're going to offer $50 million in prize money. Right. Let's see where the players go. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if you saw the UFC has this mystery island where they're going to hold cages. Yeah. And I saw I, that. You know, <laughs> it's fascinating because it, it honestly, you sort of say, this is crazy, this is borderline irresponsible, and by the way, why not? Yeah. And I, I think 
tennis actually is in a position, look, you've got two players that are on other sides of the net. You don't have the social distancing issues you have with contact sports or sports like basketball. You need about five cameras to cover tennis. And I'm thinking tennis actually lends itself to some creative problem solving here. So I don't know if we're going to see Roger Federer on a private island, but I wouldn't be surprised if people got sort of entrepreneurial about tennis here pretty fast. So we talked tennis. We talked a little bit of UFC there, uh, John. The whole world of sports, though, I mean, we think about the NFL. We think about the NBA. We think about Major League Baseball. All sorts of contingency plans being made. The president speaking with the big commissioners uh, last weekend. What I mean, you're talking to people all the time about this. What happens next when it comes especially to professional sports? It's a great question. I mean, usually in in times of crisis, sports uh, bring us together, and whether it's 9-11 or Katrina or a war, sports have this this sort of unifying quality. In this case, I can't think of anything worse than sports. I mean, you've got this communicable, you know, infectious disease. You've got this terrible virus, and what could be worse than putting 60,000 people in one place and telling them to all stand uh, in tight quarters and then all go down the same escalator when the game is over? Um, so sport, and it's really problematic. I mean, sports are sort of about, about the worst thing you can do for this virus. Um, I think the big question is just how creative are sports willing to get? Mm-hmm. And somebody said, hey, we, we should play the NBA playoffs on a cruise ship. Well, I, I don't know if that's such a ridiculous idea. I mean, the sports hmm. have really been moving towards the viewer at home, the viewer on their phone, and away from the, the fan in the arena. I mean, the media rights matter more than ever. Yeah. Maybe this will accelerate that. But I, I, think this, I think sports are going to sort of have to decide how creative they're willing to get. I mean, we keep hearing about this closed-door scenario where games are played um, not in front of fans, but just so that there are TV cameras and we, we can all watch these uh, at, at home. I think some sports are sort of lend themselves to that more than others. Some sports are pre the, the NFL, there are only eight home games. So, yeah, put, put, the, put the games on TV, and it doesn't matter if they're fans in the stands or not. There's some logistical, you know, there's some logistical challenges there. But I just, you know, we, we keep talking about flattening the curve and when we're going to get back to some semblance of normalcy. I think sports are going to be about the last thing yeah. to, uh, to resume just because the idea of packing 20,000 fans into an arena to watch a basketball game is about the worst thing you can imagine. So it's, it's really interesting. And I think, um, you know, we, we've obviously never had anything like this, but I think sports are going to have to figure out sort of how, how creative they're willing to get because, you know, the, the NFL starting the first Sunday in September doesn't seem particularly likely right now. Right. So, John, so this is something in terms of the sports world, at least in your view, do you anticipate that, in 2021, easily, we're still dealing with the after effects of it on the sports world. You know, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of uh, speculate too much. I mean, mm. I feel like we all need to kind of respect the unknown here. Mm. Ideally, you know, when, when there's a vaccine, I think it's a different ball game. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, would, would you? Uh, let me, let me turn this on to you guys. Would, would, <laughs> would you guys go to a, a Yankees no. game or, nope, or no. a Jets game in the fall? No. Yeah, not I a think chance. A lot of people have the same. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, it, we, we know this We know this from how we got into this mess. It, it only takes one person. And, you know, yeah. the, the idea of, of standing in row 23 for three hours with thousands of other people, it just, I, I don't know, um, even if the games are held, I'm not sure how many people actually show up anyway. But um, I, I think, you know, it's, who knows what's going to happen, but I, I think, 
2020 could be a wash, basically. Yeah. Well, it's been interesting to see, you know, we talked about tennis, but also to see golf trying to to deal with this, which mm-hmm. I, I feel like goes back to something you said at the top of the conversation, which is, you know, very international sport. You think about putting something on like the Masters, the, the concern is as much for the players, right, as the fans. So you play it without fans, but you've still got people coming from, from all over the world. And while you're not, you know, like doing a lot of physical interaction with each other in, in still golf. Still right? Still, you know, there is, still is some sense of, of proximity, but I, I guess there's also a huge amount of money on the line here, and, and the economics get pretty complicated. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a sort of a, a classic struggle, right, between, uh, between health and, and finance. I mean, we see this in our, in our daily... Uh, you know, in our daily presidential press briefings, yes. this tension between public health and this, this economic crisis and this health crisis. But I, I think, give me a sport like golf, a sport like tennis, there's only one locker room. And yeah. a, a tennis player made this point to me, and I, I think it's a really good point, which is, listen, we all want to get back out there. We all want to be making money. This has been financially devastating. But it takes one player's racket stringer who is on the back of a flight from Slovenia. I mean, it's just the flukiest interaction and you're talking about dozens and dozens of players all in one locker room, and it, you know it, it, it just takes one positive. And we, we saw this with you know with, with the soccer game in, in northern Italy. Right. It just takes one positive, and I, I think you're right. Even if there are no fans in the stands, you still have you've got players, you've got officials. Someone's got to operate those cameras. Someone's got to be in the broadcast truck. And suddenly, even in this this closed door scenario, even without selling a single ticket. You're still talking about hundreds and hundreds of people on the ground. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the, the threshold for when is it healthy enough and when are we economically desperate enough is something that's going to be really interesting to monitor. And that's John Wertheim, executive editor of Sports Illustrated, also a contributing correspondent to 60 Minutes. We were so excited to catch up with him. And, man, did he deliver, Carol, really thought-provoking. That was one of those conversations that I got off air. I went down, I had dinner with my family and said, all right, I've got some thoughts. Well, I have to say, when he was talking to us, I was jotting all these notes about how 2020 could be a wash when it comes to sports. And then he just said, our world at large, it's a pivot point in history. And that really stayed with me as well. All right. Pivot point in history. That's a good way to wrap up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.